0: And we seek that in all parts of our life. We're looking for some kind of transformation. We want to be different. We want to change. This is especially true in our spiritual journeys. We, We want to live increasingly more in the kingdom of God. We want to be a part of what God is doing. We want Him to use our hands and our feet and our voice to reach people that He wouldn't normally be able to reach without us involved in it, right? We want to be active, and really that's what discipleship is, right? Discipleship, or the process of discipleship, is it teaches us to be involved in the kingdom of God, to live in the kingdom of God right now, not waiting for it to come, not preparing ourselves for when it comes, but living in it right now, today, and that's what's offered to us as disciples of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? To be a learner of Jesus? Unfortunately, we, many of us have restricted discipleship or restricted this transformation to merely what we know, to, to our intelligence of the Bible. The more we learn and memorize and recite, the more I'm being transformed, is what we think to ourselves and there was a rich young ruler who had the same impulse of this. Now, if you're new here, we are so glad you're here. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry about it. Throughout this morning, we'll be putting scripture or the main scripture up on the board so you can follow along with us. And if you don't know who the rich young ruler is, here's what you need to know. He was rich, he was young, and he had power. The unholy trinity right there. <laughs> so the rich young ruler, he asks Jesus, he, he approaches Jesus and says, what must I do To be saved. Because here's the thing I'm a good guy. I do the right things, and we learned that about him a little bit. So, what does a good guy need to do to be gooder? No, more good. What does a good guy need to do to be better? What do I need to do? I'm looking to go deeper. And so he figured I'll go to Jesus. Surely Jesus will know the answer. And I feel like Jesus teases him a little bit in this interaction. We're just going to spend a moment more in it. But Jesus says, well, don't you know the commands? It's as if Jesus is saying, well, did those not do it for you, right? Are you looking for something else? And of course, the rich young ruler is something deeper, something more. And so Jesus gives him something. He says, here's what you're lacking. Go sell everything that you have and come back and follow me. The answer is, being Jesus. Right? Jesus didn't want the rich young ruler to merely know more about God, to merely know more about scripture or the Bible. He invited, he challenged him to come and to know God and to be formed by that relationship with him. I mean, the, the rich young ruler, he had the internship of a lifetime. Jesus says, drop everything that you have, come and follow me, and I will give you the answer that you're seeking. I will give you the transformation that you are looking for. He didn't accept it. But the remarkable thing is, is that we are offered the same internship. Jesus says, come and follow me. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't want you to hear me say, that knowing more about God and about his word has no benefit to us. Surely it does. That's why we read it. That's why we speak from it. It's the Word of God. But have we come to a point? Have we come to a point where we have taught people far beyond their obedience level? Have you come to a point where you have been taught beyond your obedience level? Because here's the thing. We don't just need to know. Sometimes we don't just need to know what's in here, but we need to be willing to live it out. We need to be willing to obey it, to actually do what it says. A Christian, Christian author by the name Jeff Vendorzell, in his book, he says it this way. He says, Often when I speak to leaders and people who wish we did more Bible studies at our church community, I ask them what was the last book of the Bible that they studied. Let's say they've responded with James. I then will say something like, well, that's great. I'm sure you're now caring for the widows and orphans. You're visiting the sick. You're caring for the poor, etc. To which I generally hear, well, no, not really. And then I say, but I thought you studied James. Well, yes, but I'm not necessarily doing that. See, the rich young ruler, he he went to Jesus in search of some kind of deeper teaching. But Jesus knew what he really was longing for was the freedom and joy of being a disciple, of following Jesus. The rich young ruler, he wanted a hit of something new, something deeper. He craved it. Give me something that I don't know so I can feed off of that for a little bit longer. But Jesus knew what he actually needed. You need to sell everything you have and you need to actually come and follow me. You need to come see what real depth looks like. The rich young ruler was interested in the right answers, but he wasn't interested in anything that required him to change his interior world, to deal with the stuff that was rattling around in there. Knowing about something. Listen here. Knowing about something is not the same as knowing something. Don't buy into the lie that knowing more scripture changes you. It doesn't. Knowing more scripture does not change you. Doing what scripture says and responding to what God tells you, that's what changed you. Again, this isn't to say that knowing more scripture isn't important. It certainly is. But the point is that scripture, it's incarnated inside of you. You read the text, and the text reads you. So, how do you know? How do you know if this is actually happening? How do you know if you are taking part in this type of transformation? It requires a fundamental desire to want to change the broken person that I am to let the Spirit of God do His work inside of me. It comes from a fundamental desire to want to change the broken person that I am so that the Spirit of God can come inside and work inside of of me. I don't want a hit of something new. I need to be a person who wants to be with Jesus for the simple fact of being with Jesus. And if I'm not that kind of person, and if you're not that kind of person, and if together we're not that kind of people, then what's the point? Why are we here? What's the point of it all? If we are not people who want to be with Jesus for the simple sake of being with Jesus. So how do you know if this is happening? How do you know if you are the type of person who wants to be with Jesus in this way? How do you know if you are being formed as a disciple of Jesus, if you truly are coming and following him? Well, Paul, he gives the Galatians a a slice of this kind of maturity in our portion of Galatians this morning. How convenient for us. In the text this morning, it gives us the most comprehensive, the most condensed version of what happens when the Spirit of God, when the the Spirit of Jesus is actually working inside of us. And again, if you don't have your Bible this morning, it's okay, but I encourage you, if you do, to flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we are going to be looking at this type of character, so starting in verse 16, Paul says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, let's stop there. Okay, now we've set up the two camps, right? To live by the Spirit and to live by flesh. Opposite of each other, right? Or can they cross over? Let's read verse 17. For the, desi- the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. Notice, they are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want, but you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. These two things, to live by the Spirit, to live by the flesh, they are opposite of each other. They don't resemble each other. They don't cross over from each other. You can either be in one side of the camp or the other. You cannot be in both. You make the choice. Do you live by the Spirit, or do you you live by the flesh? Now, you are all good Christian churchgoers, so you know what side is the right answer. But it's important for us to read what Paul says about the other side. The desires of the flesh. Notice what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Now, if you didn't get a gut punch right there, read that again. The acts of the flesh are obvious. They're not hidden. I don't have to convince you of them. And every single one of us knows about them. They are obvious to us. They are put out front. Oftentimes, this is the list that we define ourselves by. This is the list that we try, to, we try not to live under, but often we find ourselves controlled by. We know this list. We know this list all too well. But Paul, in case we forgot, what is this list? Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And so far you're thinking, okay, I'm doing pretty good, right? Those are pretty extreme and I, I don't really struggle with idolatry or witchcraft, so I'm, I'm doing pretty good so far, right? Well, it's about to get a lot closer to home here. Hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions and factions, and envy and drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not, what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, we're talking all about the kingdom of God, to live in the kingdom of God right now. But Paul, you're saying that if I'm living by the flesh, these obvious things in my life that I can't live in the kingdom of God. Now I don't want to spend any more time there. All right? We like I said, we know this list. We know this list all too well. And I could spend all morning emphasizing the different parts of this list, but the reality is, is that you know them. You know them in your heart. We do then. Well, this morning I'd rather spend much more time on the other list. The list that we're striving for, because we're saying, okay, Paul, I don't want to live this way. I keep finding myself sunk this way, and it's not satisfying me. I come out of it hungry every time that I live by the flesh. What do I do? What's the other option? Where do I go? And Paul says, Well, I'm glad you asked. Starting in verse 22, the fruit, notice singular. It's a little interesting fact. We won't get into it this morning. The fruit of the Spirit. What is it, Paul? It's love and joy and peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law those, notice this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? They have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. They've killed it. It's removed. It's gone. It's out of the picture. And what? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. There's an important thing to take note in the last part of this list. Notice Paul says we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. You see, whenever you belong to Jesus, whenever you accept Jesus in your heart, whenever you have transformed your life, this is not something that just comes naturally to you. You know, what comes naturally, what comes obvious, the desires of the flesh. Paul just said that. But with the Spirit, he says you have to work for it. You have to keep in step. You have to live this way. You know, when we're shopping at the mall, I walk really fast, and so I'll be cruising down the mall or shopping, and Darian's always keeping up like, oh, honey, you got to slow down, right? You Have you ever walked with somebody who walks faster than you do? Right? It takes effort to walk at their pace, to move at their speed, Well, the Spirit is working at a lot different pace than we are. We have to keep in step. We have to stay with it. It involves work. Now, for the rest of this morning, I want to spend looking at this list and breaking down this list because the likelihood is you're looking at this and you're thinking, I may have one or two of those, maybe, (laughs) but all of them? And, and you may be even looking and say, I've gotten quite a few on there, but I hope that after this morning we can redefine what some of these fruits look like in your life. Because if we're going to keep in step with them, if we have to keep up with them, that means they don't come naturally. They don't come easily. And I know that people spend uh, months and weeks working through these fruits. We're going to spend about 15 minutes, so it's going to be fast, so buckle in. Here we go. Paul starts with the first one, love, right? Love gives freely without looking whether the other person deserves it, and gives without expecting back. Now, I think it's important for us to note here that Paul starts this list off with love. I do think that was intentional, and and do you know what the last one is? Self-control. I also think that was intentional, It's as if Paul is making a fruit sandwich here, right? He's he's putting the bread on each side. He says, if you can can master love and if you can master self-control, everything in between, it will become a lot easier. If you can focus on love and you can focus on self-control, everything in between will come a lot easier. Yes, I think Paul was intentional in this list, and he starts with love. Love is action. Love is unfiltered. Love is colorblind. I don't know which of those you needed to hear this morning, but love is all of these things. Love is action. It involves, it's a verb. It involves movement. It involves taking steps. It's unfiltered. It's colorblind. Love doesn't look on what's on the outside of a person. It doesn't look at the exterior of a person. It doesn't matter the color of the skin, the nationality, the ethnicity, what that person does or what that person has done in the past. Love doesn't look at it. It's unfiltered. It penetrates. Anything that gets in its way. Love. And I loved, I love that we talked about love and the new command of Jesus last week. Tracy mentioned the new command that Jesus gave when he was with his disciples in the upper room. Right? We know the first great commandment. You're to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others, love yourself. We got that. But in the upper room, it's as if Jesus gives a 2.0. He's like, let me upgrade this one more time. You are to love others how I have loved you. To love other people how, how I have loved you. And I don't think when Jesus first said those words that it fully clicked with the disciples. But I can guarantee that when they they were standing at the bottom of the cross looking up at the lifeless Jesus, it made sense. That's how I'm supposed to love. That's what love looks like. See, love is sacrificial. And you can't be comfortable in love at the same time. time. You can't be comfortable in sacrifice at the same time, right? They work opposite of each other. Right? When's the last time you loved and you were uncomfortable while you did it? Right? It's easy to love my wife whenever she's happy. Right? We, we go out on a date that we're both enjoying. We laugh, we joke, we flirt. It's easy, right? It's easy to love her in those moments. You want to know when it's not easy to love? Whenever I know that I was wrong and I have to admit it. Whenever she's hurting and I need to hurt with her. Whenever I messed up and I need to become vulnerable whenever I need to put my pride on the back burner and put her before me. You see, this this is like infatuation. This is just joy of life. This is what love looks like. And it's in those moments that it matters. Love is sacrifice. When was the last time you were uncomfortable loving somebody? When was the last time somebody in this room, you loved them to a point that it moved you out of comfort. When's the last time you loved yourself this way? So the question to ask yourself, am I motivated to do for others as Christ has done for me, or am I giving in order to receive something in return? Love. The next one on the list is joy. Joy is gladness that is completely independent key word there, is completely independent of the good or the bad things that happen in the course of a day. Jesus was the most joy-filled person that this world has ever seen. And if you want to emphasize the joy of Jesus, you don't have to simply go further than the dinner table. Did you, have you ever known somebody who loved to eat and drink as much as Jesus did? Maybe you did, but in his ministry, right, Jesus over a table is one of the most prominent themes In Jesus' ministry. He begins his ministry at a wedding. Eating and drinking and providing the drinks whenever they run out. Jesus is often seen at the dinner table eating with Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners and religious leaders and people not like him. People from opposite sides of the spectrum. Jesus was having a meal with them. When there wasn't food, Jesus provided it. For thousands of people. Twice. Twice. Jesus, in one of the last moments with the people he loved the most, the people that would carry on his mission, what does he do? He gathers around a table and he eats with them. Even the resurrected Jesus is found eating breakfast with his disciples on the beach. Jesus enjoyed life. Jesus enjoyed people, and people enjoyed Jesus. And if you need more of an example of someone being filled with joy, I think of Jesus with the children. My children are coming to be blessed by Jesus. The disciples are shooing them away. No, don't bother him. Don't bother him. But he says, never stop a child from coming to me. What kind of people do children like? They like ones who laugh with them, who make them laugh, who make them smile, who show them love, who love on them. Jesus Surely was a person filled with joy, but let's do a redefinition. Joy is not the same as happiness. Jesus was always filled with joy. Jesus was not always happy. Jesus was so angry at one time in the temple that he flipped over tables. Jesus was so sad at one point over the death of one of his dear friends that he wept. Jesus was so scared one time that he cried out, and the text says that he was sweating what seemed to be like blood. Have you ever been so scared that you sweat blood? No, Jesus was not always happy, but Jesus was always filled with joy, and people were attracted to that kind of joy. Your question, am I experiencing a joy of life on a regular basis, or is my happiness Dependent on things going smoothly in my day. joy. The next one is peace on our list. <clears throat> peace is not the absence, is not the absence of turmoil, but the presence of tranquility even while in a place of chaos. We're going to get a little bit more to this, and you're going to notice these cross over quite a bit. I think that's intentional. Right? But you're going to see a theme throughout this, and here's one that we're going to see in faithfulness later on, is that bad things are going to happen. There is no doubt that bad things are going to happen in your life. God never promises to eliminate all the bad things that are going to happen in this life. And if we can be guaranteed of anything, that bad things are going to happen. We're going to get stuck in traffic later this week. There's going to be another terror attack, maybe next year or in the years to come. Someone we love is going to be diagnosed with cancer. Bad things are going to keep happening. But being a person of peace is not about avoiding the storm. Being a person of peace is knowing how to use the anchor within it. Whenever whenever Paul talks about being the emblem, the idea, the image, the model of peace, he looks to Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2, in the very next sentence, He's talking about Jesus as the person of peace. The very next sentence, what does he say? He says he's going to destroy the barriers that divided the people to make them one. To be a person of peace, Jesus had to do some destruction. If we are going to be a person of peace, if we are going to live out peacefulness, we have to realize that peace happens within turmoil. Peace happens within chaos. Peace happens within trouble. We just know how to use the anchor. Do I find myself frazzled by the crashing waves of turmoil in my life, or am I experiencing what Paul calls the peace that passes all comprehension? Peace and patience. Your Bible might have it as forbearance, but we're going to go with patience for the lack of for, for clarity, patience, and this definition was given to me by my father in law, so this is completely stolen from him. But patience is walking at someone else's slower speed so that you may walk together. Don't you love that idea? You see, patience is so much more than just slowing down, right? I, I think of, uh, you know, whenever you're, you're not in a hurry, maybe it's a Saturday morning, you're going to pick up donuts, you're like, speed limit's 35. I'm going to go 33 today because that's how not in a hurry I am, right? I'm super patient, right? No, no, no. you're you're not understanding what patience is. Patience, it embraces discomfort without complaints. You are unable to be comfortable and patient at the same time. They don't work together. Do you notice the similarity between patience and love now? right? Patience, you are unable to be patient without heightening somebody else in front of you and without heightening someone else's needs in front of you. Patience is humility in action. If you want to be a more humble person, focus on your patience of embracing the discomfort. Now, here's my question for patience. Don't we have a patient God? Don't we have a patient God? Philippians 2 talks about Jesus coming down, not considering his divinity as something to lord over people, but coming down to the level of a servant. God coming to our level so that he could walk at our speed. Jesus walked at our speed. He breathed our air. He felt our pains so that he could walk with us, so that we could walk together. Don't we have a patient God? Patience. Kindness. Kindness is the ability to recognize the needs of others and to take steps to meet those needs. Here is a new definition for kindness. Kindness is not niceness. Kindness is not, does not mean to be nice. In fact, oftentimes, kindness is calling people out, and it, which it can often seem not kind, to move them to what they actually need. Here's, a, here's an easy example for you. And I feel like as I was writing this sermon, this kept happening to me, but eating a meal with somebody you're with a group of friends and that, that your friend gets something on their, their face, you know, just a little smudge right there, right? And you have to basically call them out. Hey, get that off your face. And you know it's going to embarrass them in the moment, but the fact is they're already embarrassing themselves. They just don't know it yet, <laughs> right? It's embracing that moment of not being nice though you would say that it was nice, but of not being nice to help them move to where they need to be, to ultimately help them. Here's a more extreme example. When you know somebody has crossed a boundary and being willing to call them out on it. Hey, you you probably shouldn't have talked to her like that. You're married, man. Or hey, maybe, you know, I know no one's looking and no one would know the difference, but we need to be honest about these numbers at work. Or, hey, I haven't, I've noticed you haven't been to church in a while. What's going on? I mean, you really, you really need to spend time working on your relationship with God. See, kindness in the moment may not always be nice, but it's what that person ultimately needs. It's being kind. It's moving them to where they need to be. Who in my life is depending on me to be kind to them? That's your question. Kindness. And goodness, goodness is choosing what is morally good when you when the choice is wildly unpopular. Choosing what is morally good. And the likelihood is, is that goodness, most of the time, especially in our society today, goodness is not very popular. <clears throat> now, we have to, and this is a very important fact, What is morally good is what God has designated to be morally good, right? This isn't a pass, right? I'm not giving you a pass to assume, presume, suppose, object, or deliberate what you believe to be morally good and for you to put that judgment on other people. But by looking at the model of Jesus, by looking at the, the code, the alignment, we align ourselves with what God says is morally good, goodness is acting on what is morally good when it's wildly unpopular. The question, for the sake of time, let's just keep cruising through these, does my life reflect the holiness of God? Does your life reflect the holiness of God? Faithfulness, I love faithfulness. Faithfulness is the ability to stay committed even when you are lost, hurt, confused, or unmotivated. And haven't we all felt one of those at one time or another, right? Life works this way. Life works in ups and downs. I think that's why Psalms is so dynamic, why it it speaks to us so much. You have one Psalm that praises God, that glorifies God. You turn the page. Sometimes within the very same Psalm, they're yelling at him. They're confused, right? They don't understand. They're mad, right? And our life works the same way. But faithfulness, a faithful person, right? faithfulness is not the absence of trouble. Faithfulness happens within trouble. It's just like peace. It's not avoiding trouble. It's not hoping God will eliminate trouble. It's, it's embracing the trouble in our life and being faithful even whenever we're feeling lost, hurt, confused, or unmotivated. I think of John Uh, Chapter 16, verse 33, right? Jesus is talking about you will, right? When you face troubles, when you face suffering, Jesus identifies it. You will face suffering. Take heart because I have overcome the world, right? Jesus never promises to eliminate the suffering in our life. He never promises to reverse it. Something that's broken in your life may always stay broken. But Jesus says that's not the end of it. Stay faithful through it, because I have overcome the world. Faithfulness. Gentleness. There we go. Gentleness. Now, gentleness is pretty straightforward. We understand gentleness, and this is the second to last one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness is not without power. It just chooses to defer it to others. Gentleness is a strong hand with a soft touch. And if you want an idea of what that looks like, look at God. A strong hand with a soft touch. Gentleness, meekness is not weakness, right? It just chooses to forgive others, to correct with kindness, to live in tranquility. It makes a choice. Despite its power, it transposes its power. It says, you are feeling weak. Let me give you some of my strength. Do I come across as brash or headstrong, or am I allowing the grace of God to flow through me to others? Gentleness. And then the last one on our list, and if you remember, this is the bookend. If we can master love, and if we can master this one, self-control, all of the ones we just talked about will come a lot easier in our life. Self-control is not releasing our grip on fleshly desires. It's instead choosing to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You see, self-control, in its very name, It defines a battle that is happening inside of us. Self-control implies that the self is producing something that we don't want. It's producing something that is working against us and that we have to control it. But the irony, the irony of self-control is that we never really have control of our life. We just choose what's controlling us. Are we controlled by what our flesh produces? By what comes obvious to us? Or are we being controlled by the Spirit? Now we're having to keep in step with the Spirit. He's not, we're not putting ourselves on cruise control and the Spirit's just guiding every word and thought and action that we do. But we are allowing the Spirit to decide who we are going to be. This is the new definition of who I am. Because I belong to Jesus. Self-control is relinquishing your grip on the desires of the flesh and allowing the Spirit to control your actions. Are my fleshly desires controlling my life or am I allowing the Spirit to direct me to the things that please God and serve other people? Now, if you're looking at this list right now, And you're thinking, there is no way. I promise you, you are not alone. You see, oftentimes in our faith, we look at ourselves as the inferior. We are down here. There is no way that I could possibly even think about living this way. It's too hard. It's overwhelming. I'm scared of fear. I'm scared of failure. There's no way that I have the faith. Yes, there are people who can Right? There's people who have stronger faiths than us. Maybe you listen to Christian podcasts. Maybe you listen to Christian books or read Christian books. Maybe you listen to Tracy every week and you think, yeah, here's the hierarchy. You have Peter and the apostles. You have the elders. You have Tracy. You have the spiritual leaders. Maybe there's Peyton down here and then I'm right here. That my faith is inferior. There is no way I could live that way. And if you're thinking that right now, I want you to listen to Peter's words that are written to you. Listen to Peter's words. Peter, the one that walked with Jesus. Peter, the one that denied Jesus. Peter, the one that Jesus restored and said, you will be the cornerstone of the church. Peter, the leader of the first church. And Peter, the one who died believing and pointing people to Jesus. That Peter says this to you. Simon Peter, this is 2 Peter, the very beginning. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those this is you, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance to the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord to those who have received a faith as precious as yours. What Peter is saying is that your faith is at equal standing as me, Peter. He's saying, Peyton, your faith is at equal standing of me, Peter. Do you need to hear this this morning? That though you may feel inferior, though you may remind yourself that you are inferior, you are not. Your faith is equal standing of Peter, the Apostle Peter, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through Him, our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything that we need. Your faith is that equal standing. And as a church, We feel it's our responsibility. We feel it's our responsibility to give you opportunities to live within the kingdom of God right now. It is our responsibility as a church, as your spiritual leaders, to give you opportunities to be transformed by the Spirit, to give you opportunities to live here to allow the Spirit to work inside of you, to think outside yourself, to love and give grace and be patient and be humble in ways that this world has never seen with these new definitions. And that is why we are going to be challenging. We are going to be opening this opportunity to you to be active in what God is doing here in this church, in this community. At the end of the pews, Uh, At one side, there are little half sheets of paper. If you could, if you're on the end, just grab one of those, pass them down. We want to move people in our community from hunger to hope. We want to move people who are hungry and don't have resources that we have. We want to move them to a place of hope, the hope that we have ultimately in Jesus. And so on our Christmas Eve lunch, where we invite people from our community We're going to be giving out little goodie bags, little care packages to people in our community of things that they need, things that they don't have, things that we take advantage of so often in our life. So look at that list, pray over that list, and up from now into Christmas Eve, we're going to be collecting items. This is an opportunity for you to be involved in the kingdom of God to allow these actions, to allow these things to slowly begin transforming who we are as a church. And we also, we also open up an opportunity for you to respond. Maybe this morning you heard something that hit you a little close to home. Maybe you need the prayers of our spiritual leaders or our elders or whoever it might be. Maybe you just need encouragement to get through the next week. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I don't want to live by the flesh. I want to live by the Spirit. What's my next step? If we can help you answer any of those questions, we call you right now to come forward as we stand and we sing the song.